Lord, we do come today and we ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, you would open our eyes to see your glory. And Lord, would we follow you with hope and leave this place into this world with hope. Not hope in ourselves alone, but hope in Christ fully. So Lord, all the things that we come in with, we, we right now together, we just, we just put them out before you, we lay them at your feet, cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. Lord, take them, take them up. Lord, may we, for these next moments, may we feel uh, safe in your word, spoken to by you, just a, a respite in the middle of, of what is, feels like crazy all around us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you for our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's all sorts of battles that we face. Um, today. Maybe we wouldn't call them battles specifically, but there's some sort of conflict that messes with us, messes with our minds, messes with our hearts. It might be simply the fight to get out of bed or the fight to be content when you look at yourself in the mirror as you prepare for the day or the fight for contentment when your children are crying or they're upset again and maybe your spouse has done something to irritate you or, or somebody from your workplace or somebody from school continues to be a pain in your side or the driver that does something you consider to be absolutely ridiculous or, or something you hear on the news or the anger you feel and the hostilities in our culture against the image of God in a myriad of ways. Maybe it's your health. It could be a variety of other threats and hurts and fears that you feel in your life. That The battles are many. We feel them. I heard them in a couple of prayers out loud, just the the roughness of the week, the, the difficulty of the day, the, the way that we feel. We feel these things Greatly. Now, last time we were in Genesis, three weeks ago, we considered together the reason why all these battles that we feel and experience actually take place. Why sorrow and sighing and depression and, and grief intermingle, intermingle the days of happiness, the days of joy that we experience in our lives. All the battles that I just mentioned, all the other battles that I did not mention, are, they're all skirmishes. They're all skirmishes when compared to the real battle that's underneath it all that we've come to in Genesis 4, or 3 and 4, and the rest of the Bible. The real battle behind everything was mentioned in Genesis 3, and we found Adam and Eve rebelling against God, falling for Satan's subtle temptation. What we came to see immediately, though, was that God himself broke up that burgeoning unholy alliance between Adam and Eve and Satan when God said in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity meaning hostility. I will put hostility between them. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He will put enmity between them. That's the real battle. That's the real battle underneath all the other battles that we feel. The battle of all battles that all our skirmishes sit under. It's the real battle that began at the beginning of history. It's the, it's the real battle that's going to continue until Jesus comes again. 
It's the battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. We know these things, that the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of our Christ it is the battle. Certainly we get stuck in the many skirmishes uh, that we face, focusing almost entirely on those skirmishes, and they feel enormous to us. They are overwhelming to us, in fact, as we tend to lose sight of the real battle that sits underneath them all, and we, we sit in defeat rather than the victory that Christ has purchased. They feel enormous to us, these skirmishes. And it's in the consideration of this real, enormous battle that we can grow to experience hope. Are you looking for hope? Yes, yes, we are looking for hope. Uh, peace, yes, we're looking for peace amid the still difficult but significantly smaller skirmishes that tend to eat up all of our thoughts and the joy we've been promised. And, and so this text in Genesis 4 describes the beginning of this battle. Recall that the text is, is not written in a vacuum. It's, it's written to a people, a people group, Israel, as they're on the edge of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds awesome. Whether you like milk and honey or not, the picture is like it's 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 a wonderful a wonderful place. It's, it is it is the place that God has promised for them. But as they look, even though they're promised all this, as they look, as they're experienced dictates from their immediate past, the previous 40 years, and as they look forward, when, when their dads died, when their moms died, when everybody died around them, they're left sitting on, the, sitting on the edge, the precipice of the promised land again, still looking at the same enemies, still looking at the giants of the land, still looking at all this overwhelm. Now here they are, the children of the men who, moms, and that all died. They, the question is, will they do battle in this land? Will they survive? Or, or do they have no hope? And so Moses picks up the concerns, and he begins to tell them about the beginning of this battle, and he does so by telling a story that we want to consider together this morning, a familiar story to many of us. As this is a narrative, though, we want to tell the whole story and then, and then kind of come to that point at the, at the end so we can understand what the Lord's teaching us. So I want to look at this story in kind of two, two parts, two plots. The first plot is this. It all began when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God's command. You, you may remember that in um, response, God cursed the serpent. He sat, uh, set enmity or hostility between its seed and the seed of the woman. If you want to consider more about that, three weeks ago I preached a sermon on that, so take a listen to that again. But in that wonderful verse that I already mentioned, Genesis 3.15, we read that ultimately the serpent is going to literally bite the dust. He is going to literally get his head crushed. And then the woman, the seed of the woman, will be victorious. Now, do you hear, do you hear the, the victory? The, there's victory there. It's not, it's, it's, it's not defeat. It's victory. The serpent's head will be crushed. The enemy will be crushed. So, okay, great. But the question of the hour, the century, uh, the question of the millennia is, is, is who, who, who is the seed of the woman? 
asked, what Israel's asking. We look back and we can see we're going to celebrate this Friday and Sunday. We, we are so blessed to have been recipients of this wonderful story. Israel, though, on the edge, uncertain, all this. They're like, who, who, who's, who's the seed of the woman? If victory comes through him, through that seed, then, then who is that? Well, Genesis 4 begins. Now, Adam and Eve, um, or Adam knew his wife Eve. He, she conceived and she bore uh, Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, Yahweh. And Eve likely would have thought that Cain was the seed of the woman. With the help of the Lord, she says, I brought forth not just a baby. I mean, she brought forth a baby, but she, she brought forth Ish, a man, potential seed. You see the connection that Moses is making here? It's, this is, Cain is, is a, 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 a man who is, has been acquired by Eve, acquired by, through God, God giving Eve this man, this Cain, was another Adam that she had acquired from God. So surely the one whom she acquired from God would conquer the devil. That certainly was in the context here in her eyes and, and in the eyes of Israel as well. So, and he had much going for him, this, this Cain. This Cain. Eve testified that he was born with the help of the Lord. He truly was born with the help of the Lord. He started his life with the Lord, with Yahweh. And as the firstborn, according to the understanding of the Israelites, he would have also had the rights to the inheritance. Cain was the seed of the woman. But Eve also gave birth to Abel or Avel. Um, he may have been a twin brother, but Cain had the rights to of being the firstborn. I'm going to go back and forth probably between Cain and Cain um, and Abel and Avel um, as those are the names that we know and the names that Hebrew narrative speaks of. Same people. So he may have been a twin brother, but Cain had the rights of being the firstborn. And while Cain's name meant one who was acquired, Avel's name meant breath or vanity, like, like Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, that, 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 that um, just a, a vapor kind of thing. And in this narrative, Novell lives up to his name of being a mere breath. He is, he is significantly vulnerable. So the action begins in verse 3. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Avel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, had regard for Avel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now perhaps you're among the many who have not understood what is the big deal. What's the big deal? Why was God not happy with his offering? Um... Why did the Lord look with favor on Avel and his offering and not on Cain and his offering? For it seems kind of like no biggie to us, but for the Israelites, it would have been clearly understood and they would have known the answer instinctively as the people of God in that day. What, what is it we read but this? Avel brought fat portions from, from some of the firstborn of his flock. And well, obeyed God's law, which called for an offering of the very best, the firstborn, a perfect specimen, including specifically the fat portions for burning on the altar. Avel obeyed God's law. He showed total dedication and a heart for Yahweh. He, he gave him his very best. Do you see? But notice also that, now I, I, I missed this until I really slowed down in the text, 
The Lord looks on the person before he looks at the gift. Now, when you look at the text, you look at, you, look at, you think God, God looks at his gift and says, okay, well, on account of a gift, I have favor on this one. But really what we see is the Lord looking with favor on Avel and his offering. The Lord looks first at the heart of a person, at the motivation before he looks at the offering. Consider Hebrews 11, verse 4, when the author says, by faith, Avel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. By faith, Avel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Cain, by contrast, did, did what? He offered to the Lord... Which, which seems gracious, seems sacrificial, he offered to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. There was, there was no mention of this being an offering of the first fruits, the best of. His offering just seems to be superficial, something he has to do, but his heart isn't in it. And, and it seems there in this text that faith and trust is entirely absent, and therefore God didn't look on it with favor. And what do we find is the result? Verse 5 says that he was very angry. Cain was very angry, which reveals something going on in his heart, right? His countenance fell. Cain became very angry with God for not accepting his offering and, and was evidently significantly jealous of his younger brother, Abel. His anger was so observable that it even showed in his face. It says his, the countenance of his face fell. But the Lord, in his love and in his mercy, like a loving parent going after an angry child, the Lord God pursues Cain, and he says this, why, why, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Even after the devastation of the fall into sin, the Lord suggests that Cain can still do what is right. That is, obey God's law, to trust him and to believe him, to, to turn from his, his self-righteous kind of self-effort and, and, and turn to God and, and trust and believe in him. He's not a helpless victim of Satan. He's, he's, not, uh, he's a helpless victim of Adam's original sin. He can fight sin. He can do what's right, be accepted by God. But then in verse Seven, Yahweh says this, but if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The, the image of something crouching at the door is, is not a positive picture. If we, if we had something crouching at the door, we would not want to open that door, right? It would just be instinctive to keep the door shut locked. Well, in this case, it's like a picture of a lion crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And the image of that is, is, is also something that Peter speaks of, right? When he says this in chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, it says, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him firm in your faith. Like God states to Cain, Peter also claims that we can resist the devil. 
We're not helpless victims of the devil. We can do what is right. We can speak the truth. We can be faithful to our spouses. We can share what God has graciously given us with those in need. We can be gracious and merciful as the Lord is, as we believe and trust Him and be changed by Him. We can do what is right, and we can live by faith, the faith that is given to us. There are no excuses, but, but we can also do what is not right. We can harbor anger. We can, we can brood over our jealousy. We can let sin build up inside of us and until we're open to attack. Do not let the sun go down on your anger lest the devil get a foothold. That kind of thing. And God warns Cain, if you do not do what is right, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. There's this moment that the, the, kind of like the gospel is out there. He's saying, he's saying, trust me, repent, believe in me. You don't do what's right, you leave yourself wide open to attack by this dangerous beast. Now, we could think about a lion like Peter speaks of, but in the context of Genesis, what's the creature that we were just introduced to? But the serpent, right? It's like the serpent is crouching at the door. The serpent that tempted Adam and Eve, and we know that that is the same, the same one, the same father behind the lion of Peter is the serpent, Satan, the enemy, ready to strike again. In just the second generation. So it's struck in Adam and Eve's generation. The next generation with Cain, he tempts him as the firstborn. God warns Cain, do what's right. But Cain refuses to listen to God. And instead, he harbors his anger at God and his jealousy of his brother, Abel. And it seems he harbors it so much that he just has to act. Sin is crouching at the door. He's, he's gone from thinking about it, from dwelling on it, and being so upset and frustrated that he opens the door and the enemy pounces. And they end up out in the field together. Now for Israelites, the reference to the field would have had a sinister sound. What, what is Cain doing taking his brother out to the field? Well, in Israel, it had been made clear that a crime committed in the field was considered premeditated murder, not just a happenstance killing or an inadvertent accident. The victim was not able to cry for help. The, there were no witnesses around. There's a sense of, like, this is the plan that Cain wants to kill his brother. And so verse 8 says, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Seven times, seven times in this text that Scripture speaks of Abel being Cain's brother. This is not somebody insignificant, not that there's anybody insignificant, but this is his brother. This is, his, this, is not just an, this is not an enemy, this is his brother, it's his family. What kind of treachery is going on here? Sin is crouching at the door of your heart, Cain, if you don't do what is right. It's absolutely true. This is what Adam and Eve's sin leads to, and only the second generation, the murder of a brother. And there were no witnesses except one. God saw what Cain did. Verse 9 says this, The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, well, I, don't, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And, and on top of murder, that, that is, that's a flagrant lie, right? 
Jesus would say in the years to come that the devil is the father of lies. And of course, we saw that in chapter 3 of Genesis as well. And we would do right to see how Cain's lie indicates that he has moved into the camp of the devil. When he was born, Eve thought he was the seed of the woman who would conquer the devil. But Cain, nursing his anger against God and against his word and not believing him and his jealousy of his brother, gives an opening to the devil. And he intentionally kills his brother and he lies to God. And it's clear that Cain, at this point, not the seed of the woman. And there's only one other choice. Who is he? Seed of the serpent. He's out to destroy the seed of the woman. This is so much bigger than just brother-on-brother violence. This is the real battle underneath this situation where the enemy is trying to destroy the righteous line. So Yahweh says, what have you done? The the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And, And now you, Cain, You're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And remember that in Genesis 3, God had cursed the serpent and he had cursed the ground, but he did not curse Adam and Eve. Cursed the ground, cursed the serpents, and now he's specifically, a reason why I believe that he did not specifically curse Adam and Eve is because Adam and Eve are of, that's where the righteous line is going to come from. Now we see God cursing Cain, confirming in particular that Cain is the seed of the serpent, the hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will split the human race into two groups from this time forth and forever, well not forever, well forevermore, yes forevermore. Some will be on the side of Satan and some will be on the side of God. And God curses Cain and drives him from the land. Verse 12 says, when you work the ground it shall no longer yield to you its strength even in, even last time we met, last time we talked about this, the, the ground was cursed, but there was still, and it was more difficult to work. But, but now, it's that much more difficult. It will no longer yield to its strength, Cain. You shall be a fugitive, and you will be a wanderer on the earth. And Cain says the severity of this punishment is just too massive, and he cries out to the Lord in verse thirteen. He says, "My punishment is greater than I can bear." Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me is going to kill me. Now, with Cain's response, it's certainly clear that while Cain is specifically experiencing grief, he understands the punishment, it's also clear that it's not a grief that produces repentance. And lends itself to salvation. There, there is no repentance for his murder of his brother. Who is he thinking about in this moment? There's, there's not, he's not thinking about God. He's not outside of being angry at God. He's not thinking about Abel. He's thinking about himself. He, is a, he has this self-saturated remorse for what he's now to face. Paul would speak of it this way. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas Worldly grief produces death. But still, the worldly grief he experiences is real, right? I mean, it's it's heavy. Condemnation, significant condemnation. No, No hope whatsoever. 
Now, the context in Israel, listening to the story and responding to it, is that when a person had been killed, a relative of the dead person would become the avenger of blood, kind of like a bounty hunter, and he would hunt down the killer and kill him. And they knew this, Cain knew this, and, and, and uh, the Israelites knew this, and Cain knew this, so he knew that, like, really, like, I'm going to be hunted. And yet, yeah, what do we see? We see God being the God of mercy. He, he says this, the Lord said to him, it's not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Not only would there be utter and complete vengeance expended on any who might try to kill Cain, but God actually places some kind of mark on him so that no one who would find him would kill him. Lots of thoughts have been about what that mark is, but this, the text just doesn't tell us, and there's no sense trying to figure that out, really. Ultimately, the specific of that mark does not matter. What does matter is what the mark stood for. Whatever it was, it's simply amazing that God would bless him with, an, with, with mercy in some, in some, in some way or, or some sort of grace in this moment. Cain has switched sides in the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Cain has joined forces with the devil and become a traitor in God's kingdom. He's murdered the seed of the woman. God rightly curses him. What is it we would expect? What is it we would expect in this moment but God to condemn him to hell? But what happens in this moment is that God puts a mark on him to protect his life. It's a mark of God's grace. God bestows His good gifts even on traitors to His cause. There's a common grace that is experienced. Jesus Himself said on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, He says, For He, that is God, makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why do the wicked prosper? Well, common grace, even the traitor, Cain, receives God's common grace. And after receiving that mark of protection from God, the first plot comes to an end when we read this in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, that is the land of wandering. Remember, he was going to be a man who wanders. And it was east of Eden. And ultimately what we come to is the reality that those who do not trust God by faith and disobey God cannot live in the presence of of God. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they were driven out of the garden, away from the unique presence of and wonderful experience of shalom, of peace with God, east of Eden. Remember, in the, the cherubim were, were there to block the way back in. And now Cain is forced to move even farther away from God's holy presence. And interestingly, the direction again is further east. And if you know Israel's history, and you know geography, you know that the further east you go, as Israel gets older and older and older, is closer and closer to Babylon, to the utter enemy of Israel. But the first plot ends. The story continues, and so we enter the second plot. We leave the first plot thinking that Cain is left to his own entirely, but what we come to see is that God's mercy goes with him in this second part of the story. God's curse on Cain is, is, does not entirely remove God's original blessing to be fruitful and multiply. So we read in verses 17 and 18, we read this narratively, but think about the gift of God. Think about, think about the gift of children. Think about the gift of reproduction. Think about 
God's grace in all of that, not just mankind reproducing, but, but God's grace in this, God opening the womb, God providing life. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Seven generations. Seven generations from Adam. And we know seven, right? Complete, like, a, like a complete number. Seven generations from Adam comes Lamech in the line of Cain. And consider the amazing developments of the culture. Again, an evidence of God's common grace. Because without God, without God, mankind cannot think. Without God providing the common grace of, of synapses happening in our heads and our hearts beating and our breath being breathed, there is none of this that happens. But Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name is Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcain was Naama. Now, again, God is merciful and kind in giving common grace in these cultural developments that enable people to cope in what certainly are the effects of ground being cursed, of the world being under the weight of judgment, uh, certainly a difficult environment. So there's common grace, but, but all is not well. So Lamech, in the seventh generation, he, he breaks God's creation law of a marriage of one man and one woman. He, he marries two women. Now more could be said about regarding, disregarding of the created order and plan of God for one man and one woman to marry. But again, I would encourage you to listen to Dan's message from back last year in our We Believe series on that, because it's, it's just much more than what we can handle today to talk again about all of that. But it is working against the created order and plan of God. So just seven generations in, and man is already breaking God's creation law as it pertains to marriage. And then he begins to brag to these two wives in verse 23. He said to his wives, Ada, Zilla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, and a young man I've killed because he struck me. Now, that, that would not cause my wife to love me more, but evidently this would be like something that like, he was just like so hot after himself. He's a brutal killer. He's self-righteous. God's law for Israel demanded the punishment must fit the crime. So, so an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but Lamech has no regard whatsoever for the in, inward law of God on his heart, and he goes beyond this principle of justice, and he kills a young man for just injuring him. So, Kale, you're playing basketball, and someone, like, gives you an elbow across the face, so you pull out a gun and kill him. Like, nobody thinks that's cool. So he brags further. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, pointing back to God's protection of Cain, then Lamech's is 77-fold. 
Lamech takes God's words to Cain of complete vengeance and declares with authority that his vengeance will be 70 times better. In essence, he's stating that his vengeance will know no end. No one will touch me. I do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. I can fend for myself. Thank you very much. And the author has sketched the dreadful development of sin in human history. Just seven generations. Just seven generations. A complete number of generations. Sin comes to full fruition where human beings boast about their power to defend themselves and their independence from their creator and their God. They don't need him. They don't need his law. They can be good for themselves. They can be gods for themselves. In fact, is this not the sin of Adam and Eve except much more defiant? They've grown on account of common grace and their cultural developments, and they can now fend for themselves. You see, they take the gifts of God, the common grace of the Lord, and they, and they claim it for their own, and uh, we don't need God. We can just do it ourselves. And of course, this is going to culminate in Genesis 11, when we come to the Tower of Babel. Just seven generations, and humanity has disintegrated into full-blown secularism, humanism, worldliness, and, and just it continues today. And yet, this plot doesn't end there. It, it's a terrible, hopeless note if it just were to end there. The author has Israel and us in this moment look back to Adam and Eve again and in so doing gives us the hope that we so desperately need to hear today for us, for our families, for our church, for Christianity as a whole, and, and yes, for our country. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve now knows at this point that Cain is not the promised seed of the woman. In fact, her dead son, Abel, was. But Cain killed him. Nevertheless, God's not deterred from his promise. And on account of his grace, Eve cries out, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Avel, for Cain killed him. And at this juncture, we come to the primary point of the entire passage, the whole narrative, specifically in the very real battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, God is and will still remain faithful in continuing the line of the seed of the woman, and therefore his people can live in hopeful expectation. Notice the last verse, verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In the line of Cain, we see wonderful cultural developments, but increasingly people declaring that they don't need God. Yet in the line of the seed of the woman, people begin to call on the name of the Lord. You see the distinction. They, they recognize their dependence on the Lord, their King, and make the Lord central in their lives. They, they pray to God. They worship Him, and they dedicate their lives to Him. They call upon the Lord. They say, we need you. They're like the merciful, or like, like, the, like the, um, the, the uh, tax collector that cries out for mercy. The one religious guy saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing really well. Thanks very much. And the, 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 other, the tax collector puts his hand on his chest, and he's like, I need God. This, this, is, this is what's happening in this place here today, in, in this location, and in our text, and in our country today. And what we see in this is that, not that Seth is great, we don't say, well, praise Enosh, 
We don't say Cain's terrible and Lamech is bad. But what we come away with this morning is that God is infinitely faithful to his promises. He can be trusted no matter what is going on in our culture. He can be trusted, specifically here in continuing the line of the seed of the woman. If God had not been faithful, this line would have been crushed. The people of God would have been gone. Those with whom he dwells by faith, those who trust in him and believe on him and live for him would have ended with the death of Avel. But God raised up Seth and God raised up his descendants after him to continue the line of the righteous seed of the woman on earth. That's the second plot. Of course, the, the real battle with the seed of the serpent continues. Avel was simply the first of many martyrs throughout the pages of the Bible, we see ongoing battles between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We see it in the story of Egypt and the Israelites. We see it in the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. But God kept his righteous line alive until the coming of Christ. All the way along. How many times, how many times was, was the enemy out to crush the head of the righteous line of Christ, of the seed of the woman? And all he could do is nip at the heel over and over and over and over again. Satan, of course, as we'll consider on Friday, Satan managed to kill the actual seed of the woman. The Genesis 3.15 and all of Scripture points to the God-man Jesus Christ successfully bruising his heel, but in the end, having his head crushed. Still, the persecution didn't stop there. Jesus warned his disciples that they too would endure persecution, and throughout the last 2,000 years, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church growing and spreading in an unstoppable fashion amid this battle taking place around the world and in, this own, in, in our own country today. You, you might have a sense that in our aggressively post-Christian society, the battle is greater than it once was, and perhaps so. But the battle we experience today is the continuation of this ancient battle between those two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And what we're meant to see is that though this battle continues to rage all around us, is what, is what, we, what we feel all around us, God has been, and He remains, and He will always be faithful to His promises, and the victory won by Jesus in the events that we celebrate this weekend and every day is sure. Our faith is a steadfast assurance. We know that Christ has won the victory. The evil skirmishes that take place in our countries of residence are overwhelming, and they're fearful at times, just as the Israelites were overwhelmed and fearful as they stood on the edge of the promised land on that day millennia ago. But the evil skirmishes, the seeming victories of the enemy around us, the enemy of sin with us, within us, has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. Do, you, do, do, do we believe that? 1 Corinthians 15, we get to celebrate it real specifically next week. But as Kale mentioned earlier, we live in the good of the cross. We live in the good of the victory of Christ in, right, in righteousness and resurrection and the promise of the resurrection to come. This is where we live. This is the kingdom we live in. The battle is, sure, the battle is happening around us, but the battle's outcome is sure.
We're all involved in this battle. Every single one of us. It's a battle that ends not with people becoming more morally responsible, but a battle that has on one side men and women who are among those who by faith call upon the Lord and, and trust Him alone, having responded to the message that's on our hearts and tongues and in our actions. And on the other side, there's men and women who reject the same Lord, the same message, and trust in themselves alone. And the message of the church What's the message of the church amid this battle? Is it not the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it not that Jesus is the righteous seed of the woman that crushed the serpent's head at the cross and in his resurrection? Is it not a message that pleads with mankind to stop relying on yourselves? Stop relying on yourselves and rejecting God. Rather, reject the lie of self-righteousness and reject, the, uh, uh, reject all the lies that are coming at you and trusting God alone. Like, like Seth, call, calling on the name of the Lord. Appealing to people, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Amid the battle in ancient Rome, the Apostle Paul stated with simple clarity, he says, for I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We, we work in a myriad of ways as residents of this country for the good of our city. Resisting the onslaught of the marring and destruction of the image of God in humanity that's taking place in so many ways. We partner with Hope Rising, a gospel-centered ministry for the life of the unborn and, and ongoing care for families. Some of you foster, foster care. Some of you adopt others. And, and some, uh, some of you support things that are going on around the world in different ways and caring for orphans and all of that. As residents of this country, we participate in our democratic republic by voting and speaking to our representatives both locally and nationally about the destructive nature of decisions being made regarding gender and marriage and education, and the list goes on and on and on. And, and brothers and sisters, thank you for caring about this. Thank you for longing to see God made much of in this, in this land. And yet, it's this message of the gospel that undergirds all of it. And it's the message that must primarily be on our hearts and on our tongues and in our actions as we interact with steadfast, gracious purposefulness. Paul would say it this way. He says, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, both, no matter who they are around this world, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And listen, we must know that that message, this narrow message of Christ crucified comes with potential onslaught of accusations and persecutions. The message of the cross that we hear in Scripture alone, trusting in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, will be offensive to many people around us. It's, it's, it's offensive to, to some even in, who profess Christ. Christ. 
Yet while the message may very well be offensive, and so be it, the messengers should not be offensive as far as it depends on us. Speaking to a persecuted church, the Apostle John writes this, speaking to the church, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, why did he murder him? Well, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And he then told them about the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already, 2,000 years ago. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Remember the definition of Avel's name? Breath. You feel it in your own heart, your own soul, how vulnerable you feel? We feel vulnerable. The world seems powerful. Yet as we trust in Christ alone, we are safe and secure. Our souls kept through our bodies will perish until that day of final resurrection when we see the victorious Lamb with our own eyes. So in this day, we do not fear. We do not act out of anger and hatred in this world. Rather, we preach graciously, kindly, straightforwardly, and, and I say forcefully, in a way that is purposeful, not with raised voices, gentle. Jesus himself saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, may we reflect the voice of Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified. We serve and love and confront with grace-laced clarity. While we work for the good of our neighbors and cities and country, we do so in a manner worthy of the gospel. In the way that we have been treated by God, do we also treat others who are at enmity or in hostility with Him? The, the point of this passage? Well, we live in that peace and hopeful expectation, knowing that no matter how hard the battle continues to be, God is and will be faithful to preserve his church until Christ gains that final victory. And you just leave that up, Gen Seeds. That, that last, uh, hopefully it's there, yeah. We live in that peace and hopeful expectation, knowing that no matter how hard the battle continues to be, God is and will be faithful to preserve his church until Christ gains the final victory. And we would live in the good of that, the joy of that. There's, there's so many things to be despondent about. This is not one of them. Amid all the discouragements, amid all the things that we see coming at us all over the place, the, the news, the, the shootings, the, the gender stuff, the, the kindergartners learning us stuff that we don't want them to learn, it's stuff, that, all these decisions that are being made, uh, how do we live with peaceful, hopeful expectation, except that Christ will make all things right? We who were enemies of God, ourselves, we who are hostile in mind, we have been brought near. How? By the grace of God. What is the compelling message on our lips? It's not to be morally, not just to be more morally responsible, although that is a piece of, a piece of the pie here, right? But the, the greater issue, the greater issue is this deeper battle that's going on, and we must have Christ preached. We must 
preach Christ crucified because it is the gospel that's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. We want to see a country changed. It's, it's, it's not just about doing any number of things and they're all equal. It's about praying diligently and preaching Christ crucified. Living in a manner worthy of that gospel. May you and I live in that peace, that hopeful expectation, knowing that no matter how hard the battle gets, and it is getting more and more difficult, God will be faithful to preserve us, his church, until the day he wins that final victory. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6 says this, as we prepare for communion. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, that is, the suffering servant, Jesus, was despised, and he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one whom, from whom men hid their faces and he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he was, he was born our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Feel the personal connection here. Let me read that again. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. And yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. The Lord has laid on this suffering servant. The Lord has laid on this King Jesus the iniquity of us all. Friends, we come to this Lord's table this morning, be it in the front or the back, and as we eat and drink together in a few moments, we come to proclaim the Lord's death and victory in Christ, that He is with us, He is for us, and He will never leave us, He will never forsake us. The victory is His, so we can walk in the newness of life that we have and, and, and walk with our chins lifted up by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that even amid the difficulties in this land, Oh, there's, 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 there's eternal hope that we must share and that we must live in ourselves.